He followed as much as he could. You know, he didn't mix his linen and his wool and his clothing. But he decided killing magicians, as he was told to by one of the, might get him in trouble. Um, and it's not just the number, it's the peculiarity of these laws. Uh, I could not memorize these, so I wrote, I took a few down, just about how you handle animals. Um, so if an animal kills a person, the animal's to be put to death. If an animal's proven to be aggressive and the owner has been warned, but he does nothing about it, uh, and it kills a man or woman, then both the animal and the owner are to be put to death. Uh, if there's ransom of money demanded of the owner, it can be paid in redemption for the life of the other owner. Um, and it just goes on. If an animal shall gore a servant, uh, the owner shall give the servant's master a set amount of money, because servants don't really count as much as other humans, I guess. Um, if a man's animal eats the crop of another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field. That makes sense. If one man's animal kills another animal, then the live animal will be sold and the money will be divided between them. But if it's a dead animal, one of you gets to keep the body and you have to share the money. It goes on and on and on. And it's so peculiar. But it isn't just the Bible. You know, throughout the years, newspapers will publish at least once a year all the peculiar laws on the books in this country, right? I just learned that in Nebraska, there's a law about staying to the right side of the road when you're on a mountain and driving carefully. But there are no mountains in Nebraska. <laughs> it is a felony in another state to steal more than $1,000 of grease. Uh, it just goes on. And I think maybe that's partly why I always go to the side of grace. I don't really understand justice because sometimes the rules are so peculiar. When I was five, um, I had memorized all of my older brother's Peter, Paul, and Mary songs. So I knew that it's the bell of freedom, but it's the hammer of justice. So I never really liked justice. But there's a place for it. And I understand, as I look at these peculiar laws, and the repercussions and the punishments and the payments, this shows how creative human beings are about trying to restore a breach in community, right? Right now, a friend of mine is taking care of another friend's pig. What happens if that pig goes wild and hurts her dogs or neighbor's dogs? How would they make amends? I don't know if you ever watched the show Northern Exposure. I love that show, right? So Chris in the morning has a girlfriend. He meets her when he runs over her dog. And they start going out. She goes away and he house sits and another pet dies. And she says, well, you gotta make this right. You gotta give me something precious of yours. So she gets to push his motorcycle off a cliff. <laughs> now, we've tried to figure out ways to you know, repay the victim, show that the person who did this has been punished and that this will never happen again, right? We need justice. The word means to be justified, to be made right, to, to know that your relationships are put back in order. Without that, we would just have revenge sprees and an eye for an eye would leave us all blind. We kind of need these rules. 
But in recent years, we've moved towards something. Is that me moving? Is that me breathing? <laughs> All right, I won't breathe. Um, Please do. <laughs> um, we've moved towards something a, a little that appeals to me much more in terms of justice. Maybe it combines some of the compassion with it being made right. Um, and as we talked about it earlier, it's restorative justice. Um, I ran into the stories of two women who responded very similarly to tragic deaths in their families. Um, one was named Charletta Evans. She had a three-year-old boy who was killed in a drive-by shooting. And the other is Jean Bishop, who just wrote a book about the murder of her sister who was pregnant and her sister's husband. And both women said, I decided to forgive the teenagers who killed my loved one for my sake, but I was really happy that they were put in prison for life. Jean says that when that sentence came down for the young man who killed her sister, her mother turned to her, sighed, and said, ah, oh, we will never have to see him again. But a, just, a lawyer, she was in law school, and another lawyer, professor, kept pushing Jean and said, there's some more to the type of forgiveness you could do. This simple forgiveness isn't enough for you or for them. And Jean found herself visiting the teenager who'd killed her sister and her brother-in-law. But she discovered information she would never have known. She found out from the young man that her sister was pleading for her life, that her brother-in-law was pleading to save her sister's life, just take mine, that he was very, very brave up until the last. The police started to share information with her, that her sister had written, love you, in her own blood on the wall. Um, these are sort of graphic details to know, but when you start communicating between victims and per perpetrators, you start to get information. You start to learn more. So restorative justice is something that I um, wanted to learn more about. I'm sure some of you here know more than I do. I set out to learn about it. I woke up one day and I thought, you know, maybe there's a podcast. So when I'm driving for work, I found a great podcast with 70 hours worth or more that I highly recommend. It's called. Um, Restorative Justice Rising, and there are great interviews with everybody who's ever done anything. Indigenous people, um, I found stories about what's going on in Rwanda. But the main premise of this is that you get together all the parties that have been affected. The person who's um, credited with starting it in this country is named um, Howard Zare. And he started out life defending um, perpetrators. He stood up for them when they faced the death penalty or they'd been in a prison riot. He said life was so clean and simple. I was supporting, I was a good guy, and we were facing the bad guy, the system together. But at one point when he lost his job, he was, he was told to go help victims and perpetrators. And that gets messy. There's no clear sign of who's good or bad. You have to listen to all sides. But recently, just before that, in Canada, um, in Ontario, a community had tried something. Two young men had vandalized a street. And 
they, they decided there, there might be a different way to handle this. But the police officer said, I, I don't know if I can propose this. He wrote down the idea, and at sentencing, the judge said, well, I can't really do this, but added it on to the sentence. The young man had to go up and down the street asking for forgiveness. So the, uh, so the officers took them, and it was kind of rough. They'd go to the door and knock, and sometimes they'd find somebody holding a beer can, really angry. Oftentimes, they'd find a Baptist woman who had coffee and, and cookies ready. It was a really interesting experience. And out of that, other communities started to do this. So Howard Zare is handed a new program, and it's not working. But he learned how to do this. And you probably know some of the components. Um, the first part is someone has to take responsibility. You figure out who the person is who hurt community and hurt another person, and what has to happen to address the hurts. Then you try to find all the people who've been hurt who've been hit by this. Um, and sometimes you have circles that are larger and larger for more of the community. It's not just an individual victim or family, but maybe the whole community that sits there and says, this is how I was affected. And then together they decide, what kind of restitution are you going to make? And many people complain that it's a soft way of doing punishment, but it's painful and it's hard. And I watched a beautiful video of a young man who had stolen money from a barbershop three years before, or four years before. And he'd spent three years in prison. And he was taken by his mentor back to that driver, that bar barbershop. And he's getting out of the car. The mentor says, are you nervous? And he says, no, I've got to do this. This is good. So he walks into the barbershop, and he says, um, you may remember that this crime happened four years ago. Three of us did this. We held up the store for your money. I don't know how the other two feel, but I am sorry. And there's a woman sitting there who's got her head covered. And I can't tell if she's just not wanting to be shown on TV or if she's kind of embarrassed. But she peels away her hands and she's crying. And she says, on that day, I was here with my children and you put a gun to my daughter's head, and you put a gun to my coworker's head, and then you locked us in a small bed bathroom, and my daughter said, we're going to die. Um, and I didn't know if we were going to live. Can you imagine what it's like to have your children face that? She's sobbing while she says that. And then she says, but I see you're trying to be a better man. I'll be a better person. And she stands up and hugs him. And someone else in the barber shop says to him, I think it's very good that you've come back. Most people don't come back to the place that they've spilled dirt, but you've come back to clean up the mess. You should keep on coming back. And when they leave, the young man is sitting in the car, you know, looking thunderstruck. And his mentor says, well, how was that? And I thought he would be upset that he tried this and he got an attack. But he gave me hope with his answer. He said, I was so upset to see how upset I made her by making her relive that day. And over and over again, I have this, these past few weeks read stories and heard about the incredible power for healing that can happen. You don't come in assuming you're going to get to reconciliation. 
but victims of a chance to talk, um, the people who've hurt community have a chance to be heard, community itself has a chance to weigh in. And Zaire says there, it's a way of life that people pick up that celebrates and uses three core values. Responsibility, so the person has to claim responsibility for what they've done. Respect, very often when someone commits a crime, they're looking for respect. But what do they get in the justice system? No respect. What about the victims? They feel disrespected. So you work towards respect on all sides. And finally, relationship, the third R. It heals relationship. Uh, we live in a land that is full of broken relationship and anger. And I'm wondering how this can be applied in our schools, in our lives, in our world. This week, uh, National Public Radio said it much kinder than I would. I've been saying, what the bleep is happening in the world? National Public Radio said, this has been a remarkable year for democracy when voters have surprised the world again and again. So they talked about Brexit, the Philippines, where they have elected a president who promises to massacre his drug dealers and is, hold, and is following through. And now in Colombia, after five decades of conflict, they get to end their violencia. There's a name for it there. It's been going on so long. And what do the voters do? They vote it down. By a small percentage, just like Brexit, right? I think, and the, um, John Otis, who is their reporter, who's there in Bogota, says it has to do with anger. 8,000 people have been kidnapped. When I went there exactly 30 years ago, they had just had their Palace of Justice be taken over. You could still see the marks where gunshots had been fired. As I arrived, a judge was assassinated. They have lived through human rights abuses and death, and the FARC being communist and then becoming more aligned with drug dealers. So they don't trust this process. Part of the deal was to do restorative justice, was to have truth and reconciliation. But I think maybe if they had done that first and really dealt with anger and really confronted feelings and taken more responsibility for each side, maybe the peace deal would have been possible next. That's just my, my thought on the matter. Yesterday, um, I didn't cut up to say this, I had a great joy. I got to march, um, uh, a march again, um, going to the wall and celebrating there and standing in, um, across the wall together in Nogales on the UC, US side and the Mexico side. Uh, one of your members stood on the Mexico side. I wasn't brave enough. I was on the US side, but we waved at each other and we walked together to that point. And I got to pick the brain of the head of my denomination, John Dorhauer. Years ago, he worked in restorative justice in Missouri. So I wanted to know about that. Well, John is not stuck in the past. John is brilliant and moving forward. And he told me all about an article that questions restorative justice. It was talking about how white privilege is perpetuated through real estate. And how um, in 2008, when the housing crisis happened, 
a disproportionate number of minorities had been given subprime mortgages. You know, the, they had the same financial sheets, but a disproportionate number. And the Bank of America has actually paid a settlement for that. Because, of course, then a disproportionate number of minorities had to foreclose on their houses. Um, the settlement gives each family about a, who lost a house about $1,000. It's not enough. But um, an article written by a woman named Cheryl um, Wilson in the Harvard Law Review talks about what happens when you can't figure out who is the victim. When you can't just go to one person or a group of people, when it's systemic and it's nationwide, how do you do it then? One idea is to go to a different form of justice, distributive justice, where you share goods more equally. That's one idea. Or maybe there are ways that we can do restorative justice more frequently in a more widespread way. I don't know how we do it as a country, but I have an idea about how we can do it in schools. Again, I saw wonderful film clips about schools that are doing these circles before anything goes wrong. They do circles when there is a problem and children are fighting with each other. The families come in, the principal or the dean come in, and they talk things through, and they come up with a way to heal. But some groups just do it once a week in a classroom, and one of the children leads it. And they have an opening and an ending part of the ceremony, and they talk about the vulnerable parts of their lives, and even the teacher talks about herself. And it has made classrooms much more compassionate, peaceful places. How could we do that? Well, I love coming here, because <laughs> I feel like I get to consider complex issues with conscience in community. And isn't that what restorative justice is? Isn't that why we did a curriculum together, the UCC and the UUs, called Our Whole Lives, where children get to think about sexuality with conscience in community, hopefully without their parents around. So I think gatherings that you do, whether within the sanctuary or in the meetings you have outside, um, are ways to talk about complexity with compassion and ways to model listening, and ways to find healing to any rift. I hope you have better ideas than I do about the systemic issues. Um, and I hope you know a lot more than I do about restorative justice. But I'm going to be listening to a lot of podcasts in the weeks ahead. And thank you for the opportunity to be here and ask these questions with you.